Welcome to an exciting forum of alternative viewpoints and balanced ideas. This is Good Morning Canada with Nav and Nav. That's Nav C and Nav M. Confused? Don't be, because two halves always become one. Now join us for an energized hour of global viewpoints and shared ideas, only for you. Now, here are your hosts, Nav and Nav. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Good Morning Canada with Nav and Nav. I'm your host, Nav C. And I'm your host, Navem. Welcome to another hour of Alternative Views. This show will help you rethink, reshape, and reform ongoing narratives. So, since the dawn of time, the vampire has evoked fascination among cultures across the globe as a dark and hideous creature preying on victims while simultaneously striking fear and excitement into people. The legend of the vampire tells the story of an undead night stalker which feeds on human blood and has existed for centuries, traversing the sands of time, ensuring its life force endures. And many countries have personal variations from their own folklore and mythology. But all vampire stories share a key commonality, which is the lust for human blood. The first widespread written accounts of vampires are from the mid-1700s, when a vampire epidemic swept the Serbian countryside in Europe. And victims reported that recently deceased relatives or neighbours had risen from their graves to attack them during the night. And these reports later inspired literature such as the German poem The Vampire by Heinrich August Ossenfelder in 1748. Also, The Bride of Corinth was another early vampire story written by Johann Wolfgang von Goethe in 1797. The first English text to mention vampires by name is Robert Sotheby's poem Thalaba the Destroyer in 1801. However, it wasn't until the late 19th century that an Irish author, Bram Stoker, compiled a detailed account of the relevant folklore by creating a character which now acts as the blueprint for the vampire myth. Bram Stoker's Dracula was first published in 1897, and from this point, his literary character set the precedent for all future fictional vampires. Stoker's Dracula is the definitive piece of vampire fiction, and although inspired by previous stories, Stoker's inventions established the vampires we know it in Western culture. From Stoker we get the vampire hunter, the staking scene, the vampire's polymorphism, telepathy, aversion to garlic, lack of shadow, affinity with bats, wolves and rats, and the characteristic red-lipped, black-caped appearance. Vampire fiction has continued to captivate literary and cinematic audiences over the years as the early myths relating to the dark side of nature evolved into more modern reflections and interpretations that depart from the initial simplicity of the myth to reflect more modern versions as society has grown in size and complexity. However, for the purpose of this episode, we will concentrate solely on the gothic interpretation of the vampire. Indeed, it's the unmistakable imagery created by gothic fiction, from wild and remote landscapes to vulnerable heroines, from violent and erotic fantasies to supernatural and uncanny happenings, 
which have inspired masterpieces such as Stoker's Dracula and John Polidori's The Vampire. Despite creating intrigue and unsettling readers for more than two centuries, later in the episode we'll explore how these literary works have reflected the political, social and cultural context in which they were written. So as a roadmap for this episode, we'll first look at how the vampire has evolved culturally and historically from ancient history to the modern perspective. We explore the first references to vampiric creatures in myth and folklore. In particular, how these myths can be projected well beyond their origins. We explore the modern vampire literature and the transition from the Byronic figure of John Polidori's aristocratic vampire to the epoch-defining image of Bram Stoker's monstrous creation of Dracula. In addition to the terrifying characteristics associated with this literary creation, we then examine the main reasons for the allure of vampires and also the characteristics and traits of these mythical beings and briefly examine other rational explanations which may go some way to explain their uncanny or unnatural nature. And finally, we examine the concept of vampirism from an alternative perspective through metaphor analysis to uncover the underlying context behind Stoker's masterpiece in terms of political and social agenda. But first, let's begin by exploring the origins of the vampire myth. Since the beginning of recorded history, there have been vampires or vampire-like creatures in mythology. They appear in almost every culture in the world, including Asia, Africa and Europe. In India, the vampire theme can be traced back to the Atharva Veda, which describes compelling stories of Rakshas and Vaitala. While the Chinese vampire Kuang Shi was also described in stories of the Tan Dynasty. The blood-sucking vampire best known to Western tradition has its origins in ancient Assyria. The first written evidence of a vampire-like creature can be traced back to an ancient cylinder seal in Babylon in the 3rd millennium BC. And this depicted a female demon, Labatu, which fed on humans, animals, but especially small children. And ancient Greek and Roman mythology told of succubi, which were demons in female form who sucked men's blood while engaging in sexual relations with them in their sleep. The male version was known as the incubus, which preyed on women in a similar fashion. And similar legends can be sourced from early Greek and Roman mythology, and they were seen throughout Europe, Asia, and parts of Africa. Vampires are also found in biblical texts, was controlled by King Solomon according to the Testament of Solomon. And despite ties with ancient mythology, the vampiric legend is thought to originate in the East and most likely reach Western Europe through Turkey and the Balkan region, having come by way of India. Reports of vampire attacks morphed into mass epidemics, especially when associated with plague, famine and natural disasters. And as a result of these ep epidemics, the bodies of alleged vampires were extracted from the ground, staked through the heart, beheaded, and subsequently burnt. These traditions quickly spread throughout Turkey and into the Balkans, and the vampire superstitions were predominantly linked to Slavic myths. 
And as the legends became further embellished, the fear of vampires became a way of life and death, and vampire hysteria was reported in the late 1600s to the early 1700s in Wallachia, Moldavia, Serbia, and Transylvania. During the 19th century, the vampire became a character more associated with the romantic aesthetic and the movement of romanticism. It was John William Polidori, the physician to Lord Byron, who published his account, The Vampire, in 1819, inspired by his guardian, but also reflecting the tense and often fractious relationship between Polidori and Lord Byron. The work traces the portrait of a cold, aristocratic, but distinguished rogue vampire, Lord Ruthven. It was considered one of the first stories of this genre and soon became the model of the modern vampire as we know it today. John Polidori's The Vampire, published 1819, is considered the forerunner of this type of vampire who leaves marks on the necks of young women he kills whilst strongly reflecting the archetypal Byronic hero as part of his characterization. And this somber, romantic vampire type was reiterated in Elizabeth Caroline Gray's Penny Dreadful, The Skeleton Count, or The Vampire Mistress in 1828. A small transition occurred in the weekly serial publication of Varney the Vampire, or The Feast of Blood, in 1847, which would, become the vamp- which would bring the vampire a step closer to its modern incarnation. And with this mass publication of unknown authorship came the fangs, hypnotic abilities and superhuman strength known to modern audiences. And of course, we should mem- mention another famous vampire in the late 19th century, which was Joseph Sheridan Lefanu's Carmilla in 1872. And this depicted a female vampire which takes a female victim, draining her blood and identity. And in Polidori's story, the vampire is resurrected by lunar rays, reflecting the belief that as spiritual creatures, they obtain their vitality from the moon and therefore exist in a cyclical process of dying and renewal. And by referencing the moon, it evokes images of a charmed eroticism helped to blur boundaries between fantasy and reality. And by contrast, Dracula renewed his power during the day, finding himself trapped during the daylight hours in his physical form. However, it was the arrival of modern cinema where the vampire was defined by his physical state. The destruction by way of sunlight came about most notably with Murnau's Nosferatu and the epic play of uh, uh, performance by Max Schreck in 1922, where it suggested that vampires could be destroyed by light, and as the sun rises, Count Orlok simply disintegrates and vanishes into nothing. Since then, the danger of sunlight have been a consistent feature of the vampire being adopted in most film and literary productions as a threat to the vampire, if not the primary form of destruction. So let's now explore how the modern myth of vampirism developed. The the word vampire originated in Eastern Europe from the Magyar word vampire, 
and it didn't enter the English language until 1743 when it appeared in a written account of a journey called The Travels of the Three English Gentlemen. And throughout the Middle Ages, variations on early vampire mythology spread across Europe with ghastly blood-sucking monsters often used to explain plagues and other diseases. One such mythical creature was the Strigoi, which originated from Romanian folklore. Also known as Night Walkers, they were the original hideous inspiration for the blood-sucking vampires that we are so familiar with today. Their close association with peasant folklore and the dank image of earthly graves makes them far removed from the literary vampire of Polidorian Stoker. And indeed, it was John Polidori who first refined the literary essence of the vampire, changing its original appearance from ghastly revulsion to arist aristocratic seduction. Suddenly, the vampire of myth and folklore had become intriguing and sexually appealing to readers rather than a reviled and abominable creature. Hence, the beginnings of the archetype had been put in place with the vampire a tale. It was a work in which the vampire acquires a literary prominence. And Lord Ruthven, Polidori's main character, now possessed an elegant, attractive and striking appearance. Also lacking were the two most negative characteristics, the bestial thirst for blood and the theory of the living corpse. But undoubtedly Lord Byron was the true inspiration for Polidori's Lord Ruthven. And the newly modelled character was relished by its benefactor, especially the role of amoral predator and destroyer of righteousness in society. And as a result, Polidori's character was projected far beyond its initial literary setting when it was published in 1819. And it was probably the greatest artist's influence until Dracula. And the character of Lord Ruthven would go on to inspire many short stories, plays and operas based on the aristocratic vampire. The success of Lord Ruthven stemmed not only from the artistic talent of Polidori, but also the scandalous influence projected by Lord Byron himself. And it's also highly relevant to mention the influence of social class. The story was embraced openly by eminent French writers of the same period, most notably Alexandre Dumas, whose last play, Le Vampire, premiered in Paris in 1851. And it was due to the influence of the English Gothic novel that the weirdness and repellent aspect of Romanticism became fashionable. And even certain styles of clothing became fashionable among courtiers and bohemians of the day. And originally the folkloric vampires had been villagers and farmers. But in the 18th century, authors were reluctant to turn these lowly creatures into their main characters. So the vampire ascended the social ladder and was placed in the upper classes. Also, very few people were interested in reading about dead beings linked with the smell of decay. So the authors adopted a vampire concept which was easily recognisable and was also identifiable with readers like themselves, familiar with the social graces of elegance and style. So therefore, social class became a relevant theme in all vampire stories. 
And clearly there's much more to remember about Lord Ruthven and his appearance at various parties of high social standing compared to the stark image of the folklore vampire. The literary vampire now belonged to the respectable social classes. But ironically, the new image of the vampire will always be closely associated with the most marginalised communities because of its ghoulish social origins. And since then, Polydori's The Vampire has been permanently included in the Gothic imagination, reaching its maximum glory when Dracula appeared in 1897. The Vampire represents the foundation on which later literary tradition would be built, and Lord Ruthven would be the first reference to the subsequent multiform being with unequivocal proof of his immortality. So at this point, I'll hand over to Navzi, who will discuss um, a very important section on why we are so attracted to vampires. Thank you, Navim. So I'll be starting with uh, the reasons for the allure of vampires. So what are the reasons uh, for the allure of vampires? Firstly, the unique strangeness of the gothic genre. The gothic genre is unique because of its inherent strangeness and perversity. The texts are filled with marginal characters, precarious uncertainty and scenes of lust and incest. Then it comes to clashing time periods. Now, just as the settings are often mysterious, dark or secret in uh, vampire fiction, so too are its characteristic time periods. Vampire novels often take place at key moments of transition, such as the medieval or renaissance period, for example, or bring together radically different times. There is also a strong opposition, but strange affinity in the vampire tradition because of the clash between the modern and the ancient forms. Just as everything readers think, they have safely left something behind. So it And it comes back with a vengeance. Sigmund Freud, the founder of psychoanalysis, alluded to this in his uh, celebrated essay, The Uncanny, published in 1919. He mentions that class of the frightening which leads back to what is known of old and long familiar. Vampire novels are full of such uncanny effects, which are simultaneously frightening and yet strangely familiar. As a path they should be over and done with, suddenly erupts with the present and derails it. This is one reason why gothic vampirism identifies with modern technology almost as much as it does with the supernatural. A vampire is something from the past that is out of sync with its proper time or place. Vampires, just like the gothic tradition, disrupt our sense of what is present and what is past, what is ancient and what is modern, which is why a novel like Dracula is a is as full of the modern technology of its period, um, which are typewriters, shorthand, recording machines, as it is of vampires, destruction and death. Now we come to the third point, which is power and constraint. The vampire world is illuminated by violent crashes of power and its stories are full of constraint and entrapment. They are contrast scenes of imminent threat and isolation, either physical or psychological, which are happening or about to happen. 
For example, the character Lucy Vesterna in Dracula is portrayed as a young woman in danger and pitted against transgressors such as Count Dracula. Vampires are constantly portrayed as cursed, obscene, or satanic, and they are able to break norms, laws, and taboos at will. Sexuality is at the heart of vampire plots, which is often driven by questions about sexual desire, pleasure, power, and pain. It has a freedom that other fiction does not speak to in terms of erotic, illegitimate, or transgressive sexuality. Vampire texts are full of scenes depicting abnormal desires, perversion, obsession, and sexual violence. Some commentators have linked it to one of the earliest forms of pornography. The fourth point is terror versus horror. Why do readers take such pleasure in gothic vampirism, various descriptions of frightening and horrible events? And might there be something wrong or immoral in doing so? The pioneering gothic novelist Anne Radcliffe made an important distinction between terror and horror. She believed terror characterized her own work and could be morally uplifting. It does not show horrific things explicitly, but only suggest them. In contrast, horror freezes and inhalates the senses of its readers because it shows things too explicitly. A word filled with doubt. Vampire texts depict a word of doubt, particularly doubt about the supernatural and the spiritual. It seeks to create in our minds the possibility, possibility that there may be things beyond human power, reason, and knowledge. The uncertainty that goes with vampirism is characteristic of world in which orthodox religious belief is declining. There is also an exaggerated interest in the supernatural and the constant possibility that every astonishing thing can be explained. This intellectual doubt is constantly accompanied by the most powerful effects of emotion that the writer can invoke. Now we come to our sixth point, which is the concept of time and the vampire. Vampires such as Rod Rudvan and Dracula are often seen as bearers of an ancient aristocratic legacy. They exist in the present as apparent conquerors of time and immune to physical decay. Furthermore, their power and will to survive means that they can easily outlast humankind. Even after they are destroyed, their successors will live on to propagate the vampire inheritance. Although in fictional items, the vampire never dies, but these same aristocratic vampires have complicated pasts and a tenuous hold on a particular sense of place and time. Originally born as humans from an early century, they cannot fully belong to the contemporary world that they inhabit. But even as they pursue the living in order to meet their sustenance, they also need to retreat into old and familiar ways in order to assert, assert their power and defy society's rational claims. It is this composition compositional multiplicity of the vampire story which invokes a sense of the excess, the terrible 
and the seductive, which implies that the creature that the creature reaches across time and place is even more apparent. But if time is eternal for vampires, this means time contracts as the moment of attack for the human victim. Hence, the immediacy of terror and excitement just opposes the vampire's potentially infinite existence. This serves as a reminder of the momentary nature of the human vampire encounter, which means both are a counterpoint of morality and immorality. Furthermore, the extreme longevity of the vampire implies a reach across spatial boundaries, which adds to its extraordinary power and appeal. For instance, it's able to traverse continents by land or sea, implying they are supernatural beings capable of transcending the space-time continuum, exceeding the bounds of modernity. The seventh point is the status of undead. Another interesting aspect is the status of vampires as unread creatures. Um, the, theoretically, the word undead indicates the state of supernatural suspension between life and death. However, some researchers argue that vampires are not immortal. Instead, they are considered amortal for a certain period of time. In other words, death is not seen as one event, but a multitude of events or seen as a process which makes their appeal even more fascinating to readers. The idea of uh, vulnerability. Humans are considered to be at their most vulnerable state when they are sleeping. The sense of a vulnerable and beautiful young girl, half awake and half asleep, harassed by a demon, has fired the imagination of countless artists. One of the best-known illustrations for this scenario is a painting entitled The Nightmare by Joanne Henrich Fisley. Undoubtedly, it's disturbing, but <clears throat> excuse me. It also provides greater insight into the biting activity of vampires and critics. Art critics point out to the erotic side of this painting that the vampire is a figure of eternal lust, and that can be both male and female, as well as homosexual and heterosexual. From this, we infer that the Vampire can often initiate sexual arousal in um, both men and women. So uh, we're coming up to a short break. Uh, much more to come in the next segment. Uh, see, see you shortly and stay tuned. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Do you know that over 70% of people with disabilities are not counted in the workforce with twice the unemployment rate of the non-disabled? Join Joyce Bender, CEO of Bender Consulting Services and a disability leader as she talks about best practices and newest trends in disability employment on Disability Matters. As a person living with epilepsy and hearing loss, Joyce is an international advocate for disability employment. Tune in on Tuesdays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Are you looking for a fun yet informative program about health care for your pet? Check out Awesome Woo Woo Holistic Vet Advice with Dr. Jim and Kristen Carlson. They look into natural health alternatives for ourselves, so why not our pets? 
This program provides the most up-to-date, accurate, and innovative information about traditional and holistic veterinary medicine. You'll find a ton of answers regarding your pet's health every Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Variety. What are the labels that identify us? Who are we and how do we figure out our place in the world? Do we own our narrative? If you were to create your biography today, what would it say about you? Listen for Dropping In with host Diane Dewey, the author of the award-winning memoir, Fixing the Fates. Diane and her guests will give their version of finding themselves. Find out about your authenticity by dropping in every Friday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time and 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Join Chris Epting every week for the moment. Chris talks to some of the most amazing people you'll ever meet, including authors, artists, and athletes. And that's just the A-list. These celebrities and public figures have interesting stories that all showcase the moments that their lives took a certain dramatic turn, changing them forever and shaping them to be the person that they were meant to be. Listen for The Moment with Chris Epting, Wednesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You are listening to Good Morning Canada with Nav and Nav. To find out more about us and the ideas behind our show, visit our website at gmc-radio.com. That's gmc-radio.com. Now, back to Good Morning Canada. Welcome back. You're listening to Good Morning Canada with Nav and Nav. Great to have your company. In the last section, um, I was talking about the reasons for the um, lure of vampires. Um, now we will be discussing about the vampire myth. So how was the vampire myth created? Although vampires are not depicted in the same way across different mythologies, they still inhibit some of the same characteristics. For instance, they drink blood and are nocturnal. In order to further explore the vampire's mythical status, it's necessary to look at how the vampire became a myth. So according to some researchers, a vampire is the result of transformation where the innocent becomes corrupted. For instance, the result of incest or an illegitimate relationship. Other regions of the vampire point to a problematic childbirth. The Malaysian vampire Langasur was a beautiful woman who gave birth to a stillborn child. After realizing that the child was dead, she clapped her hands and flew away into the trees. Soon afterwards, she began to attack children and suck their blood. Another vampiric creature that is found in early Hebrew folklore is Lilith. In the Talmud, she is considered to be Adam's first wife who left and became a demon that walked at night and killed newly born infants by sucking their blood and strangling them. 
Some scholars even regard Lilith as the origin of the English vampire, and she was a very popular figure in Victorian literature because she represented the exact opposite of the typical chaste Victorian woman. There is also Lamia, a vampire-like creature that originates in Greek mythology. She was said to be a Libyan queen who had caught the eye and the interest of Zeus. In a fit of jealousy, Hera, Zeus's wife, took all of Lamia's children away from her because they were fathered by Zeus. As a result of the punishment, Lamia withdrew to live in a cave and since she was unable to take out her aggression Hera, she killed the babies of random human mothers by sucking their blood. The British poet John Keats wrote a poem entitled Lamia in 1819 about a serpent woman who transforms into a beautiful woman. Also, the vampire became a myth due to unexplained problems or unforeseen events. Often in, often in ancient times, it was believed that the problems surrounding childbirth were the cause. The, limit, the link between vampirism and childbirth is interesting because it seems to be at odds with the typical myth of the vampire, whereby the human is bitten by a vampire. Evidently, the link between vampires and sexuality has been there for a very long time and sheds light on why it is still embedded in the conventional vampire myth. However, since the original vampires were female, the vampire is not only connected with sexuality, but also feminine emotions, which can be difficult to cope with, such as childbirth. In medieval times, the reason for becoming a vampire was a religious matter. One of the main explanations for vampirism was the dead person had crossed a moral or a religious boundary. This included people who had committed suicide, engaged in some type of evil act, or perhaps they had even they were not even allowed to be buried in hollowed ground and were therefore believed to have some have, have had were believed to become a vampire after his or her death. Furthermore, the death of a loved one could lead to vampirism because the death the dead person still had emotional ties in the living significant other. There were also several superstitions connected with this manner in which someone died or were buried. For instance, if the death had been violent or if the brutal the burial rites were in, insufficient, the dead may become vampires. One could also become a vampire by the meaning of contagion to an existing vampire, which is the most common belief of the cause of vampirism today. Now, this discussion leads us to neatly to the next section, which is what are the characteristic traits of the vampires? In vampirism, there are certain identifying characteristics in relation to their existence. Here are a list of the most um, common ones. Firstly, the most fundamental feature of the vampire is the fact that they bite people or animals and suck or drink their blood. Now, in order to do this, they usually have a set of fangs they will use to penetrate the skin. They're also recognized by their pale skin that is cold to touch and red eyes. And some vampires were said to have hair growing on the palms of their hands. 
In folklore, vampires are nocturnal creatures who sleep in graves during the day because they have an aversion to or may be severely weakened by sunlight. Hence, it is only active when it is dark, which adds to the myth of terror associated with night and darkness. A general rule is that they, they are not able to walk in a house unless humans invite them in, and they have neither a reflection in a mirror nor a shadow. Vampires also possess certain characteristics which are of the supernatural kind, such as great strength, hypnotic powers, the ability to fly, and ability to transform into animals. For instance, the bat uh, is often linked to stories surrounding vampirism because it is the only flying mammal. Indeed, certain species of bats exist in South America which feed on blood, hence they are called vampire bats. In Roman mythology, Furies, goddess of punishment, was thought to have a bat's wings. And during medieval Europe, bats were associated with witchcraft and dark magic, often referred to as the night birds of Satan. And people believed that various ghouls took the form of these mammals to haunt people. The power of transformation is an interesting feature because it points to something unique about the vampire's power. Essentially, the vampire, the vampire can transgress or go beyond some type of boundary between the natural and the supernatural by stepping over a threshold. The concept of boundary makes us question what this mythical figure, figure actually is because vampires are not strictly speaking, alive, nor are they dead, but are trapped in the realm between the living and the dead. Another aspect of transgression is that a vampire's physical shape is like a human. However, they are clearly not human. They exist mainly during the night form. Another aspect that exists during the day, provided that they do not necessarily move around outside, even though these creatures seem very powerful and indestructible, other myths inform us of ways in which to protect oneself against vampires. They are all allergic to garlic, sunlight, crucifixes, communion wafers, holy water, and other sacred symbols. Also, some vampires need to sleep on their native earth. Vampires can also be killed in numerous manners which includes driving a stake or knife through their heart and preferably removing it from their body by decapitation, by burning them, driving a nail through their head or neck. However, judging by the numerous examples of vampirism from ancient myths, the, the features that characterize them and the rules that apply to their existence can easily be misunderstood. So now <clears throat> let's turn to some of these misinterpretations. Early vampire myths were often associated with superstition and unexplained events. These legends arose due to a clear misunderstanding of bod bodily decomposition. For instance, as the skin of a corpse recedes, its teeth and fingernails appear to have grown more prominent and longer. Also, an integral organ break down a dark purging fluid called, um, you know, which can leak from the nose and mouth. People unfamiliar with this process would interpret this fluid to be blood and suspect that the corpse had been drinking from the living. 
bloody corpses weren't the only cause of suspicion before people understood how certain diseases spread they sometimes imagined vampires were being the unseen forces which ravage rural communities due to this close association with disease hence trying to kill vampires or preventing them from feeding was a way for people to feel as though they had some control over the disease take porphyria for instance which affects him the chemical compound which makes up the hemoglobin content in our body historically porphyria has attracted attention as the vampire's disease it is a rare disease where patients suffer from itching rashes blistering of the skin from oversensitivity to light in the worst cases the gums recede from the teeth making them appear far more prominent the bodily waste takes on a purple hue like that of un- undigested blood and and the effects of sensitivity to light can be so severe that the sufferer loses their ears and nose a physical appearance which resemb- which resembles the um, the mythical strigio and echoing the looks of vampires such as nosferatu when suspicion of vampirism spread through an era it was not uncommon for village and town people to exhume suspected corpses to check for the hallmarks of a vampire in the grave bodies were identified as vampires because they lacked decomposition or were bloated normally a vampire's corpse appeared fresh the cheeks were reported to be full and rosy the lips and the mouth were red from what appeared to be fresh blood and the hair and the fingernails of the corpses appeared as if they had continued growing however most of these signs can be explained with basic knowledge of decomposition for example decomposition rates vary depending on temperature and soil composition which can cause slower decomposition in the right circumstances also corpses bloat bloat from uh, gases creating created during decomposition explaining why a body might look well fed bloating can also cause the body to groan or emit gas after death because of intestinal glass build up which people interpret as a sign of life finally the skin and gums contract making it making it seem like the hair nails and the teeth continued to grow it is very probable that many cases of vampirism were simply naturally decaying bodies the people mistook for evil beings disease diseases such as catalepsy which have been cited as possible explanations of vampirism this disease places people into catatonic states so deep that their pulse becomes very difficult to di- to detect which inevitably means some individuals were buried alive if they woke some of them were driven driven mad and f- with fear and hunger and they would bite themselves an explanation perhaps for some of the corpses found with fresh blood mostly people in the rural communities kept animals and the villages themselves were usually close to forests and woodlands which were home to many of these animals before vaccination was discovered rabies was rife through europe and Furthermore once the symptoms which included aversion to light and water aggression biting and delirium developed death was inevitable people literally turned feral by the contract with by the contact with the animal so this brings uh, me to the end of my piece i'll hand over to navem 
who will uh, take us through the final section on the metaphorical links of vampirism. Thank you, Navsi, for that excellent piece on the origins and myths of vampirism. So I'd like to expand on one of your points about the characteristics of vampires, in particular the contradictory point about transgression. And we know that a vampire's physical shape is like a human's, but clearly they're not human. They're active during the night, yet they maintain an existence during the day. And one question that comes to mind is, is it possible for this transgressive power of the vampire to be the one quality which enables it to become a metaphor in humans? Because the vampire is a figure that originates in myth, and the function of myths is to educate us on aspects of our own being. And and this is a very relevant question because... <clears throat> we can now begin to explore this. Firstly, myths are often incorporated by writers into their work, as we've seen in the classic Gothic tradition. Myths also evolve through literature and become part of contemporary culture by creating a new perspective. Myths express beliefs and a common ideology for all of humanity. And it follows that myths relate to metaphors because they try to convey a truth that could not have been expressed otherwise. So with this in mind, we can proceed to the final section on metaphors and vampirism. And we investigate whether, uh, sorry, in the last part, we investigated whether the vampire is linked to a broader metaphorical meaning. But firstly, let's begin with a brief definition of a metaphor. It's a figurative expression in which a word or a phrase is shifted from its normal use to a context where it evokes new meanings or a transfer of meaning. And we know that vampire narratives can act as metaphors for prominent social issues. For instance, they inform us about sexuality, power, alienation, attitudes towards illness, commentary on religion, gender and race equality. Also, how do we define the word evil in terms of political and economic structure? Hence, the vampire as a metaphor can be instructive in learning about ourselves. And this immediately raises some important questions. Firstly, is it true that vampirism with its unique characteristics is a suitable metaphor for repressed desires and passions. Secondly, is vampirism an embodiment of today's globalized issues, especially pertaining to secular Western society? Thirdly, is the concept of vampirism an expression of latent social problems, fears and developments? Further, is vampirism still applicable in, to, in today's world of globalization? And how has the depiction of the vampire and the issues which it represents changed in today's world? And to answer these questions, let's firstly re-examine the vampire, in this case, the character of Dracula, in relation to the setting of the plot. So firstly, let's look at the issue of race and anti-Semitism. The late 19th century was dominated by a strong conviction that the British as a nation, as a race of people, as a social and cultural power, were in moral and national decline. 
there existed the fear of criminality, infection, corruption, mass poverty, and the collapse of morals and values. There was also the threat of foreign invasion and social de degeneration was ever present. And the originator of that anxiety was universally determined as the racial other who invades the country, disrupts the domestic order and pacifies the host race. And throughout history, this unspoken narrative has acted as a value for releasing social pressure by ostracizing certain groups. So we see in Bram Stoker's Dracula, the Count was a member of that destructive other. He represented an archaic foreign power which posed a threat to the Western world. The idea being that vampirism only manifests itself in those countries where there is a sense of spiritual backwardness, as was the case in Eastern Europe. And in the novel, Dracula himself describes Transylvania as a whirlpool of European races, while Jonathan Harker describes it as one of the wildest and least known portions of Europe and home to every known superstition to the world. Transylvania represents the polar opposite to London, which is the fountain of spiritual enlightenment. In contrast, the Carpathian Mountains are a stronghold of superstition. They are unexplored, foreign, barbaric and uncivilized. And this makes this region a fertile breeding ground for Victorian fear and animosity towards a foreign invasion. And interestingly, it's been referred to as a process of reverse colonization. Another aspect of Victorian racism was widespread anti-Semitism. And this sentiment is present clearly in the text of Dracula. During the 1880s and 1890s in Victorian England, people developed a strong hatred towards Jews. This is clearly revealed in the description of Dracula by Harker. This anti-Semitism is based on the latent fear of invasion of a subordinate race, such as the Jews with clear overtones of them being parasitic. Stoker portrays the Count as an intruder planning to infiltrate a country. He plans to slowly corrupt society and eventually take over the country by undermining Victorian society. And in view of Dracula's origin, his planned invasion of London, which is the centre of the British Empire, and to destroy an entire nation. The vampire embodies the Victorian fear of foreign evil and racial corruption, which poses a threat to Western moral supremacy. And as Harker wanders through the castle, he sees gold of all kinds, Roman, British, Austrian, Hungarian, Greek, and Turkish. And this plays into the image of the vampire <clears throat> and the links with anti-Semitism. The Count refers to his past battles and his statelessness. He needs to fight in foreign lands and destroy them to assert his superiority as a male warrior. But his maleness is reversed as he's depicted as a man hoarding the gold and money of his enemies. And this is what associates him with the Jew because throughout history, Jewish money lenders were thought to travel with immense amounts of gold. The second point is the portrayal of the <clears throat> vampire's powers and the role of blood. And here we refer to Dracula's immense physical strength, his undead state making him immune to conventional types of attack. 
his ability not only to control the weather and waters, but also nocturnal animals such as rats, wolves, and bats. And his shape-shifting into these animals, eventually turning into a cloud of mist. The idea continues in this physical description of the vampire, the Count with his strong aquiline face, thin nose and peculiar arched nostrils, lofty domed forehead, massive eyebrows and bushy hair that seem to curl in its own profusion. And this corresponds with Victorian ideals of anti-Jewishness during this period of the 19th century. In other words, degeneration and Jewishness were not that far apart. Dracula also exerts a strong impact on women, being a catalyst for sexual desire. And this is juxtaposed against female sexual independence, which was strongly repressed at the time. And the third point is the symbolism of blood. There appears to be a clear link between Dracula's blood, his sexual activity and the fear of infection, which highlights the threat of contagious disease, such as syphilis, which had gripped Europe for centuries. Vampiric sexuality must be rooted out, and blood plays a major role in this process. In other words, lifeblood is being removed from society and degeneration is being injected. It also reaffirms the connection between foreign and dangerous, as opposed to English and pure. <clears throat> so next we need to examine blood as the source of life. And blood is a central concept in many religions, most notably Christianity and Judaism, as well as the scientific field of medicine. Blood has been the symbolic basis of many oaths and contracts through history. And in, in addition, sacrificial blood was also obtained from animals and humans in ancient times. But the interesting thing is that lifeblood can be seen in a modern sense referring to agriculture or oil and natural resources, <clears throat> or the manufacturing base of an economy, and also in relation to freedom of speech within society. And also, there's a significance from a biblical perspective. We can find strong references to blood in the Old Testament. Whatsoever soul it be that eateth any manner of blood, even that soul shall be cut off from his pe people. Leviticus 7.27 so many of the examples of metaphoric vampirism are also relevant to the final section on vampiric capitalism. And this is where we begin to finally redefine the traditional vampire narrative. Firstly, vampires in capitalism, the vampire myth has sometimes been interpreted as a symbol of capital struggle especially as the inherent clash between social classes and the means of economic production through capitalism. And this is based on the premise of cannibalistic economic consumption of both human and material resources required for growth. Second, vampirism in the political sphere and world governance. Many comparisons of vampires and multinational corporations have been made over the years in relation to strategic interests such as oil and money markets. And within the broader umbrella of global capitalism, world governance has come under scrutiny, meriting a comparison with vampirism. 
So let's wrap up with some final comments. The previous pieces have shown that social commentary is only one reason for the ongoing popularity of vampires. We also see that the vampire has experienced a notable change in recent years in its communicative strategy, especially in relation to gender and race. And this transformation depicts capitalist behavior abandoning its traditional predatory role and is now portrayed in a light based on a reciprocal relationship. So does this symbiotic change mean that the vampire myth is derived from a projection on the part of the living? For instance, we find it difficult to imagine our own existence after death. So it's easier to imagine a life that carries on in one particular form that we're familiar with. And in the final analysis, to comprehend the undead, it's necessary to do so in the context of the living, which provides further insight into why vampires are so fascinating. It's because they were once like us, very much human. So regardless of their physical appearance, their special powers and their natural appetites, or their immortality, the undead reveal their true origins and remain altogether human. And that's all we have time for in today's episode. Thanks very much for listening to Good Morning Canada with Nav and Nav. Really appreciated your company. See you next week. Thank you for listening to Good Morning Canada. Please join Nav C and Nav M for another great program next Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time and 12 noon Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll see you soon. <laughs>